Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. How are you? I hope you're well. I'm fine. I'm COVID fine. It's a phrase I have stolen from someone. I'm now going to try to make my own. So don't tell anyone. I think this is a very good show. It's an interview with Pablo Torre from ESPN. We talked about sports, obviously, and the pandemic, obviously, and politics, obviously, because that's what you do. Uh, we also talk about why he's not a lawyer and what it means for him to be a first-generation Filipino-American who's on TV. But first, I want to travel back in time to last month when I interviewed Alex Lieberman. He's the CEO of Morning Brew. Also a very good chat, I think. Uh, we talked about how he built this newsletter business five years ago, starting at college, how it's boomed since then and his plans for the future. And then at one point, I got to this part of the discussion. Are you going to tell me that you've raised a pile of money in the next six months? Uh, no. Because? No, we, because we, we luckily don't have to. What Lieberman didn't say was that he and his partner, Alex Reef, weren't raising money because they were in the process of selling the company, which is what I reported last night. They're selling it to Business Insider. The deal could value the company at 75 million bucks. Whatever the number works out to be, it's a lot of money for two guys who barely raised any uh, investment capital. So they're going to make a lot of money. It's a great deal for them. It's a great story. Congrats. Not to get too navel-gazy, but it does underline something I've been thinking about for a while. There are limits to interviews like this. Um, I take them very seriously. I also enjoy them, I think you can tell. I think you guys like hearing them. Uh, when we present them, we present them with sort of all the ums and ahs and buts. Sometimes I have to remind the editors to leave in the awkward pauses there. So you can hear the whole thing, you get the full context, because um, I do consider this stuff journalism. But it doesn't always mean you're getting the full story, just like you might not tell someone the full story when they ask how you're doing. Uh, sometimes I'm not asking the right question, or maybe just the guest isn't being forthcoming. I'm thinking recently of a CEO who I had on. I asked him, are you selling your company? He said, no, we're not selling the company. It turns out his banker's out there trying to sell the company. I think that deal is going to close pretty soon. Um, so it's really just a navel-gazing footnote I'm making here to, to just keep in mind that someone might say something here that maybe isn't the full truth. Could be a flat-out lie. I try, to, I try to get as much truth out of them as I can here. But uh, I guess this is just sort of my, my FDA warning that, that not all contents of this interview may be 100% truthful. Okay, here is what I hope is a mostly truthful interview with Pablo Torre from ESPN. I'm here with Pablo Torre from ESPN. Welcome, Pablo. Thank you, Peter. How are you doing, man? Uh, it's a hectic day, and I guess that's going to be uh, standard operations for... I guess the rest of my life, but certainly the rest of this year. How are you? <laughs> same, same. Very hectic. I'm standing inside of my recording closet. You're catching me between sessions, so I feel the chaos that you feel. I can see some laundry blowing in the in the wind there. Um, yes. <laughs> I've got the same setup. Um, I should formally introduce you as the host of ESPN Daily, a daily podcast about sports, as you might imagine. You're also all over ESPN back and forth on various shows. Um, you've had your own show on the air. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about all of that. Um, I also just wanted to get a sense of what it's like to be in the sports business today. We're recording this on Wednesday. There was NFL game yesterday. Yes, on a Tuesday. I think that's the third time ever on a Tuesday. Yeah, in 74 years, third time. Because of the coronavirus, there was the NBA Finals that concluded this week. Um, college football was kind of going on. Uh, baseball playoffs are going on. Uh, apparently the NHL playoffs concluded recently. I did not watch those. Um, <laughs> we were waiting since Mar it, all sports, as we all know, shut down in March and sort of started to come online in fits and starts over the summer. And now they all sort of showed up at once. What's it like to be in the sports business when 
everything comes online and there's literally too much to cover and talk about and write about. Yeah, to betray, I think, my increasing age, there is this like, I love Lucy dynamic. I'm feeding on the chocolate on the conveyor line and I am just stuffing it into my mouth as fast as I can without getting too sick. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it reminds me of... of <laughs> This is an embarrassing way to start this podcast. It reminds me of that Darren Ravel tweet. Uh, <laughs> I feel I feel bad for my country, but this is tremendous content. Oh, and that's like the the famous uh, Les Moon. Remember Les Moonves when we would we would quote him and not think about <laughs> yes. sexual harassment. Uh, but he <laughs> said, you know, "Bad for the country, but good for CBS." He was talking about Donald Trump. So I, I don't look. There's a larger conversation around like sports and ratings and how many people are in fact enjoying the smorgasbord, the sportsmasborg that I just described. But from a journalistic perspective, and what I do is I talk to reporters, I talk to newsmakers, I try to both preview and react to the biggest news of the sports calendar. I have found that even when there was no sports, Peter, there were so many absurdly interesting stories that were historic, that were terrifying, that were chaotic, that were existential. And we can go from the Bucks wildcat strike in the bubble. We can go uh -huh. to the creation of the bubble itself, how all these sports were preparing to play while managing all of the pandemics, racial and viral in America at the same time. It's been nonstop since I took over this thing, um, what feels like 90 years ago, but was actually just July. Just July, you jumped into this. Um, and what's your sense of sort of, I assume the answer is, well, I'm answering my own question before I've asked it. I'm assuming you, your audience says, that's all great, but what we really want is sports. Tell us about the games. We're, we're here for social commentary. We're, we're interested in history, maybe. Uh, we really want to talk about uh, who's going to win whatever division we're talking about. Do you get that feedback? You know, not entirely. I think we have to provide sports, and we do. That is, you know, I'm cognizant of the notion that I'm going to show up at Pizza Hut, and I'm going to get a pizza. Do Pizza Huts even still exist? I guess they do. Not I see, I see their ads. Yeah, I've never been to one. Uh, <laughs> God, God bless. Uh, in New God York. Bless in New York pizza City, Hut. I've never been yeah. to one. <laughs> Same. Uh, not, in, not in decades, at least. But I am cognizant of, like, people expecting to be served a certain dish. And so we are very squarely within the world of sports. But in terms of how we tell those stories, I mean— we will go from an episode that is a almost like 30 for 30 style short film or an E60 feature, a profile of a player in which we are using sports as the entryway into someone's life. And I hope and we get a lot of great feedback that people do, in fact, enjoy that. They enjoy that sort of human interest angle. We do some enterprise stories that I'm very proud of, but it's all very rooted in the sports itself. You'll very rare. I mean, we haven't really diverged much at all from sports as the origin point. But I find that the origin point gets us to a bunch of other places and issues that I think we're pretty uniquely well-equipped to handle. Yeah, I was listening to the show you put out uh, last night slash today uh, where you went very deep on on the sort of status and and and, and rev revivification, is that a word? I just made it up, of I the Buffalo so. Bills. And then you also had a really interesting talk with Dan Schur, who makes uh, TV and also created this Joe Morgan uh, anti-fan site um, that had a really interesting idea about sort of baseball sabermetrics and sort of um, 
being overtaken by events that I found kind of poignant and interesting. Uh, yeah. One thing I should point out, if people haven't listened to your show, um, most folks are familiar with sports talk radio and and sort of the version of that that we hear in podcasting. This isn't that. This is no. much more akin to like the New York Times Daily podcast where you are talking to reporters about a story they have reported and you're letting them tell their story and you're, there's still two guys talking like we're doing right now, but it's not a chat about show. It's a, yeah. it's a reported show. Yeah, I like to say that, and our and our lead producer, Eve Tro, is from this world explicitly, but there is a, and I say this entirely complimentary, complementarily, I think is the word I just invented. Um, <laughs> there's a public radio kind of, sentiment DNA underneath it. So it's not going to feel like apologies to anybody who was expecting Mike and the Mad Dog uh, sort of inhabiting my soul when you were going to open up a pod. There are plenty of places to get that. There are plenty of other places to get that. We do not do that. Um, we are doing something different. And what we do is kind of, it's kind of, uh, as they say in, in football, coach terminology is multiple. We'll do episodes that are featurey. We'll do episodes that are news analysis. We'll do episodes that are previews. We'll do episodes that are interviews with newsmakers. But by and large, we are going to approach this not like you're hearing it other places in the world of sports talk radio. And, and who do you think the, the, the audience is for that, right? Because they're, they're obviously consuming sports. They're coming to you to get more sports. Tell me, who do you think they are? And, and, and what scratch are you itching? What yeah, pitch are I mean, fundamentally, God, I'm so <laughs> off today, but you get the idea. I, I'm feeling itchy these days myself. Um, no, I, I think we're trying to make sports fans both entertained and smarter. So, if those are two things that you out there are interested in, we are the podcast for you. We are not going to do. Sometimes we're not going to do the most obvious story just because I think that is, in fact, duplicative and that's redundant given the many other options out there. But can we provide an angle, a sort of aperture onto a big story that you may not have expected? That's sort of the sweet spot that I want to find. And so the metaphor that I kind of use when explaining the podcast to people is that if we are going to give you broccoli and you broccoli, we're going to melt some cheese on it. You know, we want this to feel good, but also yep. be nutritious. We want it to feel like you're learning something, but also laughing and feeling emotions in the process. I mean, I've always been fascinated with the idea of sort of what ESPN in general does with sports coverage, right? There's the base, which is here's a game. You can watch it. Their origins are nightly highlights um, way back when nightly highlights were a rare thing. And if you, you would only get your local markets thing. So if you were in Minnesota, like I was, you'd only get your local highlights. You could yeah. see stuff from around the, from around the country, around the world. Now you can get that everywhere. Um, so what do you do to stand out? And it kind of makes sense that you guys would try this sort of more thoughtful approach saying, look, there's a million places to get highlights. There's a million places to get conversation about a thing that just happened. And we're going to gin up a fake controversy. We'll do something different. Yeah, and, and the other part of it, too, is we get to leverage one of the increasingly sadly rare aspects of ESPN, which is that we have this armada of journalists, of reporters who are experts, who don't get used because there are so many of them, and they get lost through that sort of standard filtering of the sports talk news cycle that you just described, Peter. Yeah, I was, I was kind of struck when, because you did this Buffalo Bills segment uh, yesterday, and you said, oh, this is our Buffalo Bills beat reporter. And I thought, 
Oh, that's pretty wild. I didn't realize right. that ESPN had a <laughs> Buffalo Bills beat reporter. In Buffalo. And I wonder if that's a prime gig or not. Um, well, it, well, I think after Tuesday night's game, it is less prime. It yeah. is now subprime, perhaps. But Marcel Louis-Jacques, who is the excellent young guy, who is the Buffalo beat reporter in Buffalo, covering this team full-time, like, what other national media organization has the resources to do that? And it's sad that there aren't more of them, but the fact is... We have this whole, like, tree that I get to pluck fruit from every day. And these are people who sometimes I have not heard in the podcast format, let alone the format that we want to put them in, which is as much analytical as it is storytelling. So the idea that I get to basically very often parachute into the lives of all of these very busy journalists and say, hey, give me your best on the day that it is most relevant and goodbye until the next time. I mean, that's this luxury that I don't underestimate either. You you alluded to this earlier. There is a conversation about sports fandom and politics and the pandemic. And this comes up sort of regularly. Uh, but yeah. whenever ratings are down, there is a discussion about if they are down because of, of liberal politics or you can find euphemisms for it. The NBA finals were way down. Mm -hmm. um, you had folks like Ted Cruz sort of delighting in that, saying, oh, it's because they're too woke. Stuff's been jammed in our faces. You know, I just had this discussion with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg a couple of weeks ago. It seems obvious to me that all ratings are down because TV viewing is down. Yep. Also, all sports viewing has been down in the pandemic. There's a lot of sports viewing, but there's a, all the sports yes. have been down a lot. That said, I'm sure you are constantly being reminded that there is a vocal group of people who says, we don't like the way... X or Y or Z is being covered, often it's directed at ESPN. And how do you navigate that? Yeah, I am certainly cognizant of it, and I listen to a lot of it. And I try to take it as good faith as often as I can, even as you list a couple of examples that are pretty explicitly political bad faith campaign tactics. Like, I would say that on the one hand, I want to empathize with people who, again, are like, hey, I came here for sports. Stop shoving this stuff down my throat. And I certainly understand that to a point. And by the way, like when the NFL paints end racism on the end zone, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't really resonate with me as a touching inspirational maneuver here that feels like you reallocated a marketing budget as opposed to are truly committed to undoing some things that you had been sort of aiding and abetting for you. You don't think Roger time. Goodell is, is, is uh, going to be marching anytime soon? Yeah, I don't see him raising the fist, although at this point, it's not out of the question given the yeah. financial imperatives that are changing the equation, Peter, about what is now expected in these games. And so as someone who watches all these games, where my empathy for that sort of good faith version of the critique ends is, I watch the games and I'm getting sports. Like, it's not like these, I think there was a, I think Tim Burke, formerly of Deadspin, did an analysis of this. But in terms of like how often these terms were all mentioned throughout these broadcasts, throughout the NBA finals, it's a vanishingly small number. Like I was pointing out after, I, I believe it was game five, one of the best NBA finals games I can ever remember. This was like, the Jimmy Butler Friday night game? Jimmy Butler, yes, yes, yes. And it wasn't like Jimmy Butler at one point was like, you know what, I want to stop this game and talk to you about tax reform. Like, that's not happening. These guys are now swimming eyeballs deep in sports. Now, in terms of, like, the conversation around how much does it affect me and seep into what I do, I will confess to a certain personal frustration, and it's actually around this notion. We have been listening for a very long time to people talk about how they want everyone to stick 
to sports, okay? And I understand that. I understand where it comes from. But it's always framed as this is the demand from the true fans, from the true mm-hmm. sports fans in America. And the people who have stopped watching sports and the people who still levy the critique that, you know what, this isn't for me, I have to then question, well, how much did you really love sports in the first place? Why do those people who literally turned off their TV because they could not handle a slogan or a logo or a motto, why do those people still get to be America's number one sports fans? I just wish we'd reframe the whole debate around who is actually participating in this conversation and why they're participating in it. Because there are so many people of color, for instance, let alone women, let alone all these people of different demographic backgrounds, Peter, as you know, who have never seen themselves acknowledged really until recently in sports, let alone sports broadcasts. And those people, they've been watching the whole time. And somehow they're the ones who don't love sports enough. I also just don't believe that there are that many of the former group. I just think it's easy to say it on Facebook. It's easy to say it on Twitter. You know, we'll see. I think there's a lot of reasons someone's not watching sports right now, but I think the fact that they're upset with name your player is really hard to stomach. And the other part of it too is like, you know, and again, you hit it, right? At the very beginning of what you just said, it's about the linear television model, right? When the NBA viewers decrease, my sense is that increasingly over time, they're going to be on the internet consuming the game in different ways. We can certainly parse what it means when you stop watching the game in a Nielsen box setting and start consuming it in other ways. Did they stop watching the game entirely? That's certainly a metric question that's very valuable to many industries at this moment. But I think the equation is changing. And so, yes, it is a multivariate equation. Why are people stopping watching? a bunch of different reasons, one of which may be, and in fact, this may be the biggest reason, it's because that group of people that does have cable television, and we see this in the numbers and the ratings for political news, they're going over there. It's not that they don't necessarily want less politics. They just want to get it mainlined from the news channels. And therefore, we're going to put sports on pause and go do that. I was going to save this for later, but since we're here, so this discussion of sticking to sports and ESPN's role and it's ESPN too woke, this comes up repeatedly in the last several years. The old regime, John Skipper, was uh, criticized for being too woke or liberal or just involving too much politics. Uh, Jimmy Pitaro, who's been on this show, has been explicit about the fact that he wanted to sort of recalibrate that and, and, and do more sort of general interest sports and politics were okay if they're part of the story. So now we're back in 2020. Politics are very much part of the story. Yes. Just what kind of edicts are you getting or not getting about sort of how you guys broach this? Yeah, I have not gotten any specific edicts about what we do on ESPN Daily. But to your point, you would have to be blind to not understand the evolution of what's been permissible at ESPN and elsewhere in sports media in general. I mean, as soon I've always felt this way, by the way, but as soon as the athletes come out and say it, then it's very much a matter of sports news. The question then is, does it rise to the level of our coverage and discussion? But the definition of you're the ones injecting sports as if with a syringe, well, no, the people we cover, they're the ones kind of doing that. But in terms of the edicts, to your point, I mean, on ESPN Daily, I am proud to say this, we have covered some of the most, um, what's the right word? Um, Theoretically radioactive subjects. We did a whole episode based on reporting about China and the Uyghurs and the NBA's moral conundrum in terms of being this league of social justice, but also 
being a league that has been complicit with the Chinese government. So we did an episode on that. No one said not to do it. It was something that spread far and wide, and I'm so grateful that we got the chance to do it, even though it jeopardized, theoretically, some business incentives. When we did the episode with Malika Andrews overnight in the NBA bubble during the Bucks Wildcats strike, and the NBA then started this cascade domino effect where literal live rights to games were themselves put on hold, again, jeopardizing Mm -hmm. the business. We were all over it. And that was something that I heard from Jimmy about himself. He really enjoyed the episode. So for me, the question has always been at ESPN, and this is why I'm still here and why I do enjoy working for them so far, is that they see or understand that for what I do, at least, I can't speak for anybody else, but for what what I do, there must be some element of real journalism if you want that credibility. Like if you want to cover sports news, you can't be in denial about what that news happens to be, given the world we're living in right now. Just to be a devil's advocate, because I agree with you, but couldn't you say, you know what? Actually, you don't need to be, you don't need to have journalism in sports. You can show me the games. Those are games. And then you can have people talking about the games. And and it doesn't really matter if they're making stuff up or not. And and, and there's a bunch of people probably at your network who don't really care what they're saying. They're just trying to create a controversy. It's entertainment. I don't, I don't expect, I don't expect, um, if I go to see Tenet, which I'm never going to see in a theater, but we'll eventually see at my home. Um, I'm just seeing Tenet. I get that it's entertainment. Um, why can't sports just be entertainment? Why does there have to be journalism in it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a completely valid critique. And I am not naive to the notion that when you create the financial pie chart of sports media as a business, live rights, man. I mean, there's a reason why when I do a show like PTI or Around the Horn, if the Little League World Series is on that day, we're getting punted because live games, even the ones involving small children, those are the ones that are in fact the business that we do. But for me and for ESPN, I think the decision is fundamentally, are we also a media company? Are we also a company that wants to make documentaries and cover games and provide consumers and fans of sports with something deeper beyond what you're getting on the game broadcast or even in the barbershop sort of conversations, which I love, by the way. I love the theater of it, all of that. I want to be entertaining no matter what. But in terms of, do you want more? Are you still a little bit more hungry? The bet is that fans are. And I totally understand also, though, that that is a luxury that many media corporations, as margins shrink, it's going to be harder and harder to justify given that financial pie I just described for you. Boy, I hope you get to continue doing journalism. Um, We're going to take a quick break. Going to hear from a sponsor that allows us to do this kind of journalism. We'll be right back. Back here at Pablo Torre, still at ESPN. You said you you like it here so far. How long have you been at ESPN? Man, I joined October 2012 as a senior writer for ESPN the magazine, RIP. So that has been... uh, it's been a, a pretty long good, ride. So yeah, a good, so a good ride, but a ride. Yeah, you want to? You're eight years in. Um, before that, you were at Sports Illustrated. Before that, you were at Harvard. Um, yes. Did a little, little asking around, a little reading. So you grew up in New York City. You go straight from Harvard to Sports Illustrated. Was the plan always? I want to be a sports journalist. God no, no. I was a sports writer for the college newspaper for fun. And because I love sports and I've loved writing and that was my extracurricular activity. But I wanted to be a lawyer, man. I took the LSAT twice. You wanted to be a lawyer or you thought you should be a lawyer? I, I, well, that's the existential question that I contemplated as I studied for the LSAT in a library for many, many months. I thought I should become a lawyer. It was a path of 
linear success in theory. It was achievement to achievement. I could chart it out. I knew other people, most importantly, because I'm pretty risk averse, who had done it before. Was there a lawyer in your family? My brother and my sister are both lawyers. Um, some of my, my grandfather was a lawyer. I mean, I just have lawyers everywhere. But the high school I went to, Regis High School in New York City, was also like a feeder for lawyers. My friends at Harvard were humanities people who wanted to make some sort of living, which meant you became a lawyer, which yep. also meant that you never actually used your humanities degree. But nonetheless, you became a lawyer. So I remember taking the LSAT, not getting the score I wanted the first time, and then taking the job at Sports Illustrated as a fact checker. I had interned there again, mostly for fun, the summer before. I took that job because it was going to be my gap year, basically, before grad school. And I took the LSAT again. And by that time, I was like, actually, weirdly, fact-checking magazine journalism felt like something that was stoking the actual things I enjoyed this entire time. So I never went back. That's a good story. There's a ton of lawyers, as you probably know, who are no longer lawyers, right? Yes. Which always cracks me up because, I mean, or, or is very sad and tragic because to, <laughs> to, to spend that time in college prepping to take the LSAT to go through three years of law school. And then sometimes they spend X number of years at the mega law firm, and yep. then they decide they don't want to do it. There's a, especially if you go to Hollywood, it's stocked with former lawyers. Right. It's amazing. Right. No, I don't know any other profession like that where someone decides after five or ten years, I'm getting out of this, <laughs> I'm doing something else. There was always, I imagine, a common delusion that this passion I had for reading things would be funneled into a useful skill in the world of the law. But no, you're just coding documents and you're not really doing the stuff you actually like. But yeah, if you had, Peter, if you had a genie appear in front of me when I was in the library studying for the LSAT the first or second time, I would have used one of my wishes on a really great fucking LSAT score. And that is so unbelievably pathetic in retrospect, but could not be more genuine to what my brain was so tunnel vision focused on at the time. So you're at Sports Illustrated when Sports Illustrated is still Sports Illustrated to some degree. It's still the magazine. It's still doing journalism. Was your thought, oh, I like this. I'm going to, I like this writing. But what I really want to do is get on TV. <laughs> so TV and it, TV landed on me in, in perhaps the most absurd way it has landed on anybody, which is to say it was 2008. It was the Beijing Olympics. Everybody who knew anything about the Olympics was over in Beijing, opposite time zone. I'm back in New York in the Sports Illustrated offices, fact-checking, writing pieces here and there. A call comes in to the PR department. The call is from the O'Reilly Factor. And it turns out that Bill O'Reilly wants to talk to somebody from Sports Illustrated about Michael Phelps and swimming. Get me someone. Get me, it doesn't matter body. who. And, a, why did, a, and why did he care about Michael Phelps? Was this the, the bong incident? This was, in fact, just a passion project for Bill O'Reilly, who- Just into swimming. He was a guy. high school swimmer on Long Island, a fact that I did not know but fully began to appreciate as I sat across from him in his studio and began to be lectured about swimming by Bill O'Reilly. So it was truly like, hey, do you want to put a body in front of this guy as he regales you with tales about swimming? And I was like, I guess this is what television is like. Dude, by the way, I mean, that's a great story, but you also bummed me out because I thought that was going to be a great anecdote I was going to ask you about, and you'd be surprised. You'd say, where did you hear that? And I'd say, I can't tell you. I got sources. But <laughs> thank you for that. So you get lectured by Bill O'Reilly about the 200 IM or whatever. Yes. Uh, 400 free, whatever whatever one, one whatever he's into. <laughs> and then you decide, this is the life for me. 
I got well, to work my way up to ESPN. <laughs> so after surviving that, it just turns out that once you prove you can do something, and again, everyone else is still over there in Beijing and China, they just throw me into all of these, as I discovered the parlances, cable news hits. And then you prove that you can do it. And I should point out here at this point in the story that what I did in high school, I was the Lincoln-Douglas debate team president, which is not a thing that I'm proud of really saying in general among athletes when they ask, what did you do for sports in high school? And I say that. Um, But I always sort of enjoyed that part of communication. And I'd never really figured, though, seeing nobody like me on TV, certainly at that age, that it would ever be a thing. You say seeing nobody like you, meaning? Meaning I didn't see anybody who looked like a Filipino-American first-generation person that had no athleticism in their body talking to people about sports and analyzing sports and the issues around sports. And that, just, and that, and that, that registered with you that you could not do TV because you were not what a TV person looked like? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it just didn't even enter my mind. Like, I, I, again, so the reason I went to law school was because I could chart a path based on other people. There was a safety there. I remember going to my yearbooks and circling, literally circling pathetically, Peter, like this kid did this, this, and this. He went to this, this, and this. And so I was like going to Harvard on that path. And in the world of television, I would watch ESPN and save for very, very rare exceptions. There really was not anybody. And so it was hard for me to realistically, again, as a risk averse person, think, okay, yeah, that's what I want to do. I, I never thought that. Do you think about that now that someone who looks like you uh, sees you, or maybe someone who doesn't look like you, but realizes that you don't look like a lot of other ESPN talent and says, oh, maybe I could do that? That seems like a, if, if you do think about it, it could be a real weight for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't have a choice to think about it because people started telling me that as soon as I started going on ESPN. As soon as I started being a face in the rotation on Around the Horn, and then you go up the ladder of shows across the company, I hear from people like young Asian kids. Um, or, but to your point, like people just who don't really look like the former jock, sports talking head, slick kind of dude. I heard, I heard from those people so often that it has always weighed on me. And, and yeah, it, it's funny. Like, I try to be self-deprecating whenever possible. That's just my personality also. But I also am now cognizant of, like, yeah, representation is a real thing. I'm also representing them. And so I, I'm trying to do this calculus of I want to be someone who can be laughed at and with, but I also want to be somebody that people can watch on TV and think to themselves, I'm glad that that dude is doing that. And is your thought, the best way I can do that is to just do my job straight and the fact that I'm Filipino-American is just a thing that sort of comes with the package or do you want to be explicit about that either in interviews like this or even on air? Yeah, I've gotten more explicit over time and it certainly was a thing that I really didn't want to accentuate as difference goes. I didn't want to always wave my hands and be like, hey, see how weird it is that I'm doing this alongside all of these like established columnists and former athletes. Mm -hmm. I was very afraid to do that at first. But over time, as I think people got to know me and I got to be more comfortable being myself, it's really hard to watch someone like Eric Spolstra win his NBA titles and then return to the finals this year and not point out that that dude is half Filipino. Like how rare, so there is, there is the desire for me to identify those like me, even in sports that are sort of like crypto Filipinos, crypto Asians that people necessarily maybe 
missed the first time, and I'm going to be that guy claiming them proudly. My college girlfriend's roommate, I don't know what her actual ethnicity was, but when, when uh, we were watching Wayne's World on TV and Tia Carrera. <laughs> oh, yes. She, Asians on TV. That was literally, she was just excited about that. And that also I, sh- it shows you so, my age. It's so real, but it's so real. It's so real. Yeah, when I see, I mean, Lou Diamond Phillips, part Filipino. Rob Schneider, unfortunately, part Filipino. Like, I can give you the whole list, man. Like, yeah, there yeah. are group, there are group texts entirely. Oh, I, used to, about I, used to, this. I had the the list of, of Jewish athletes, and also uh, with long <laughs> right. debates about about which members of Van Halen were Jewish, and we, we got David well, Lee Roth and not. But I just learned, to your point, Eddie Van Halen, half Indonesian. Like, this is, it's it's really hard for me to not get excited just because. Yeah, we don't as as Asian Americans. Broadly, and by the way, like there are various huge distinctions between various countries in Asia in terms of like military conflicts with each other and so forth and so on. But there's just an excitement to see representation of any stripe at this point. So this sort of ties into this question. So you were you had a show on ESPN, a TV show, uh, High Noon, uh, which when it was canceled, the Washington Post described it as an experimental afternoon talk show. What was experimental about it was the fact that you just had two people of color talking. <laughs> it was you I and Bomani f- Jones, by the me, way. Me and Bomani, I think, felt experimental because we were who we were. And we were going to go deeper on topics. We were going to do like single deep dive segments that would, that would again, I think, go for a combination of smart and funny in a perfect world that felt and sounded unlike other shows. And I think that part, the feeling and sounding different was totally true. And maybe that is experimental, but I also think it's because, hey, we have like two non-former athletes who come from particular backgrounds, who, to your point, look particular ways, and they're going to talk to each other in ways that I think are just maybe novel for some consumers out there. And so the degree to which it was an experiment, like I never felt like I was, you know, being fired into space, you know? Like I, I didn't feel like a cosmonaut pet that just is now floating through mm-hmm. space. It's a television but, show. Talking yeah. about sports, it's been done. <laughs> and, and two people talking on television about sports, two men, how shockingly experimental, right? Like, that's not that weird. But I think because we are who we are, it certainly came across that way. And so when it was canceled, it sort of had this, some of the discussion around it was, oh, it's just, it's either too weird. And ESPN even said, we think the show is really good, but the viewers didn't agree. Um, <laughs> um, and it's sort of, it's sort of the, this, the way it was discussed was, the show is either too weird for ESPN or too political or too not white. Um, and there was a lot of sort of head shaking. You stayed on though. I'm talking to you. You're now in a closet. Um, yes. Was the plan, all right, TV didn't work. I'm, I'm going to do podcasting or that show didn't work and I'm going to try some other kind of TV down the road. Yeah, the feeling I got was that there were certain desires in that time slot that we were unable to meet. I would say that for the lack of ratings um, standard setting, (laughs) we were proud of what we did. I mean, if you look at the ratings, like some days, most days, like 350,000 people or so were tuning in to High Noon. Like, that seemed pretty good to me. I don't know. I'm not in that sort of Mm-hmm. realm of the business, but didn't feel embarrassing. And by the um, way, you're not the not. first show to be canceled. That's sort of the, the standard for television, right? Ex- exactly. So the turnover of like, hey, we're going to try something new in this time slot, various factors are floating in the air. 
that was not entirely shocking to me, even if it was disappointing because we were so proud of what we were doing. But in terms of where to go next, I knew I still wanted to remain on television. And the word that I got from ESPN was, we still want you to be doing television. We think you're good at it. So I was like, okay, great. So I can still do Around the Horn and Highly Questionable and fill in on PTI when I can and Outside the Lines and Sports Center stuff. They're like, yes, good. But the Daily, ESPN Daily as a concept, didn't emerge until the summer. And so I was sort of planning something in podcasting before I got offered this particular job. And it was probably going to be something more narrative, more long form, one of those kind of mm-hmm. longer term podcasts that are so hip these days, but fed into my desire to do journalism and storytelling and magazine style stuff. But then this happened. Mina Kimes, my good friend, ends up becoming a new analyst, a football analyst at ESPN. This slot opens up and I jumped on it immediately. And she I had the I show you, you, and now it's your show. Yeah. Yes, she vacated the job of ESPN Daily Host, which had launched, I think, a year ago next week. Um, and there's a conversation around who should be the person to take over. And they wanted me and I wanted them almost immediately. I don't know if you've heard, but podcasting is kind of a big deal right now. The kind of is, is the operative word. We don't know how big it is, but it's definitely something. So we're glad to have I've you. He- I've, heard, I've, I've, I've heard that, uh, that this whole podcasting thing that you do is good in the future. That's what I've been told. I like it too. Now, I was trying to figure out a slicker way to end this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end there because it's that kind of day. <laughs> Pablo, thank you for your time. Thank you for showing me the inside of your closet. I really enjoyed your time. Peter, thank you so much for taking interest in whatever the hell I'm doing in this closet. Thanks again to Pablo Torre. I really enjoyed that one. Thanks again to Joel and Jelani, who edit this show and produce this show. Thanks to our sponsors who let us bring it to you for free, zero dollars. We have yet to charge you a penny for this podcast. And thanks again to you guys for listening. All we ask, actually, is that you tell someone else about this show. And you do. So thank you. Uh, This is Recode Media. We'll be back next week. 